this morning. Um, Our text is John chapter 5, verses 19 through 47. And so if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open it there. Um, We're going to be all over this text. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 47. Well, J.C. Ryle, who is a titan of expositional thought and a personal hero of mine in Christianity, has this to say about this particular text that we've just heard read. He says, There are few chapters in the Bible, perhaps, where we feel our own shallowness of understanding so thoroughly and discover so completely the insufficiency of all human language to express the deep things of God. Uh, From the start this morning, I have to confess that I've found this to be true as I've studied this text this week. Uh, It's almost like looking fully into the sun. Uh, It's so bright that it's almost difficult to see clearly. Uh, I want to try to tackle this text, but I know that in 35 minutes, I'm not going to do it justice. So, um, bear with me as I try to, at kind of a high level, make observations about these truths that Jesus teaches us in this section. Um, First and foremost, I want us to see that this whole monologue that Jesus gives here is sparked by a statement made in verse 18, where John tells us this. Verse 18 of chapter 5. John says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, meaning Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jews are trying to kill Jesus because he was making himself equal with God. The way I see it, if someone accuses you of something like this, you really have three different options to choose from. First, you could backpedal. You could say, no, 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 no. That's not what I said at all. You misheard or you were mistaken about what I said. That's one option. Option two, you can slightly reinterpret. Yeah, you're, you're partially right, but let me correct you a little bit. That's option two. Or three, You can let the statement stand and even expand deeper. That's what I believe Jesus does here. Uh, Not only does he not correct the Jews or backpedal, he actually says more to incite them, throwing gas on the flame that will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. Look at what Jesus says in verses 19 through 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. He's saying, let's be clear here. There is complete unity between me, Jesus, and the Father. Everything the Father does, the Son does. They're two persons, but one God. 
If there was any confusion amidst the Jews that Jesus was claiming to be equal with God, but just as a separate God, in other words, on the same plane as God, but different or rivaling, Jesus is squelching that. He's saying, no, 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 no. God the Father and I are one. The miracles that I do are the miracles that the Father's doing. Turning water into wine, cleansing the temple, calling people to repentance, healing two different people with the word of his mouth. All of those, he's saying, were with and of the Father. And he's saying, if you thought those works were impressive, He's saying, I'm going to do even greater things, and he's going to do greater things through me, so that you'll all marvel. Jesus is claiming absolute divinity and unity with the Father. There's no mistaking that here. Uh, Many scholars within Protestant liberalism try to kind of soft-sell this, saying things like, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. He just claimed to be a good example to follow. That's baloney. Jesus doesn't backpedal here. He stands firm and digs deeper. This is the Jesus that we believe in. This is the Jesus that we serve and worship. Now, with that being clear, I want us to move forward in this text, looking at three big categories that Jesus addresses here, answering the question of who he is. Number one, Jesus is a life giver. Number two, Jesus is a just judge. And three, Jesus transforms desires to the glory of God. So let's dive in. Point one, Jesus is a life giver. Jesus is a life giver. So as equal and in unity with God the Father... One thing is abundantly clear throughout this entire text. Jesus has the power and the authority to give life. Look at verse 21. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. What's he talking about here? Look at verses 24 through 25. Colors it in a little more. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He goes on in verses 28 and 29. He says, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I want us to see this. Again, Jesus is talking here on two different levels. A physical level and a spiritual level. In a bodily physical sense, he's saying, I, Jesus, have the power to raise people from the dead. Soon, I'll show you with my friend Lazarus in chapter 11. But I will also raise everyone from the dead on the last day. 
And I don't want us to miss this. On the last day, everyone will be raised. Everyone from the holiest Christian you know to Hitler himself will be called forth from the grave by the voice of Jesus. Some who have placed their faith in Jesus or those who have done good in our text to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Daniel chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Speaking of this last day, says this, Daniel 12, 1 through 2, it says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Similarly, when Paul speaks before Felix in Acts 24, 14 through 15, Paul says this. He says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So Jesus will physically raise every human being that has ever lived or ever will live. And he's superior to all of them. Again, this is a clear claim to divinity and to oneness with God the Father. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, it says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That's God speaking. Similarly, 1 Samuel 2.6, it says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. What we're seeing here in our text is that Jesus has the same authority and the power of God, the Father, to give life. But he's also not just speaking on a physical level here. He does have that authority. But he's also speaking on a spiritual level. Look at verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and what? Believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Not surprisingly, Jesus is talking about belief here. The life that he's bringing isn't just momentary physical life here on earth. It's much better than that. It's eternal life. And it has everything to do with Jesus' word. That's what takes someone out of judgment and passes them from death to life. That's what produces those who have done good in verse 29. Here's what I mean by that. Given our own sinful nature, because of that, 
We're all dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2. We don't do good. But when we hear the voice of God through the word of God and we believe in him, we're given new birth. John chapter 3 is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Jesus' righteousness is then placed on us. We're justified and made right with God. We're awakened and alive like dead dry bones that are standing and full of life. The salvation of our souls depends on hearing Christ and his voice. So first and foremost, Jesus is a life giver through his word. One more point before I move on. Notice that in verse 25, Jesus says, An hour is coming and is now here. It's coming and it's now here. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there's always an already but a not yet aspect to it. He's saying, I'm now here. The things I'm doing now are inaugurating the kingdom of God. And the types of things I'm doing now are a foretaste of the last day and what I'll do there. He's saying, you can know with certainty that, that one day, Jesus will call out the dead, and the dead will rise from the grave, some to eternal life and others to eternal judgment. But you can also have Jesus' abundant life now and believing by believing in him and turning from your sin. Look at verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has, present tense, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Salvation certainly has future benefits, but it also has present realities, already and not yet. The one who trusts in Jesus is completely justified and forgiven. No more condemnation. A new standing before God. Life. Jesus is a life giver. Point two, Jesus is a just judge. Jesus is a just judge. Uh, We've already noted a couple of truths about this, but look again at verse 22. He says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He goes on in verse 27 to say, And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. I believe that there's two sides to what Jesus is saying here. In one sense, this term, Son of Man, is a technical term taken from Daniel's vision. We've read this text several times in the last year, but I'm going to read it again. Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14. Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, 
and the books were opened. Amazing scene there with God himself on the throne. Continues on in verse 11. And I looked because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, speaking of the Son of Man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in one sense, here in our text, in John chapter 5, Jesus is saying very clearly, I'm the Son of Man. That that messianic figure spoken of in Daniel, the one who's given authority to judge, and who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, he's saying, that's me. That's why I have authority to tell a man to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. The Father has given me the judging authority of the Son of Man. So that's one sense in which Jesus is letting them know that he's the Son of Man. But in another sense, Jesus seems to be making a comment, not just on his divinity, but on his humanness. And that humanness qualifying him to judge all of humanity. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31, Paul says this, Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. He says, the, time of, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, it's just and right for humanity to be judged by someone who fully understands what it's like to be human. They're being judged by a jury of their peers, in essence. And yet, he was without sin. And while Jesus is the judge, he brings an abundant amount of other witnesses to the stand, doesn't he? To testify of the truth of who Jesus is against them. Look in our text. First, he brings John the Baptist to the stand in verse 33. He brings the Father himself to the stand in verse 37. He brings the scriptures to the stand in verse 39. And then Moses in verses 45 through 47. Look at what Jesus says starting in verse 37. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice... You have never heard, he says. His form, you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. These words here in the text from Jesus' mouth are absolutely damning. 
Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. It says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses heard God's voice, didn't he? In our text, Jesus is saying, You don't hear his voice because you don't listen to me. Genesis 32, verse 30. It says, So Jacob called the name of the, the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So Jacob saw God's form. Jesus in our text is saying, you've never seen his form. Jesus is God in the flesh, and they don't see him as God. Joshua 1.8, it says, this book of the law, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And here Jesus is saying, you don't have his word abiding in you. You see what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Because you don't believe in me, you're not a true Israelite. He's trying to get them to see that that your nationality doesn't matter. Your study of the scriptures don't matter. Your faux authority doesn't even matter. Because you don't believe in me. It's about belief. And that will be the measuring line of Christ's judgment. So Jesus is a life giver, and he's also a just judge. Moving on, point three, Jesus transforms desires to the glory of God. Jesus transforms desires to the glory of God. Now, I want to be clear from the start with this point that Jesus is talking to the Jews here. But while he's doing that, he's also talking to all of us as humans. John doesn't just include this story to mock and ridicule Jews. He includes it so that we might believe and have life in Christ's name. That's the whole point of the whole book of John, according to John 20. He says there's many other things that happened in Jesus' life, but I've included these so that you might believe and have life in Christ's name problem that we see in the Jewish leaders here in the text. That same problem is the problem that each and every one of us have. What do I mean by that? Let's start by looking at verse 40. Jesus says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They refuse to come to Jesus. Literally, what the words say is, you do not want to come to me. Again, before the Spirit breathes on us and we receive the new birth described in John 3, that's true of all of us. None of us wants to come to Jesus. Ships don't move without wind in their sails. Dead bones and dead people don't move toward Jesus. This is what the Spirit does. So, why do they and we not want to come to Jesus? I believe we find the answer in verses 43 and 44. 
Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I think what Jesus is saying is this. You don't come to me because you don't want to. And you don't want to because you don't believe. And you don't believe because you're the center of your own world. People are big and God is small. That's their issue and our issue. Until we're born again. When we're regenerated, when we're born again, and when we turn from our sins and trust in Christ, he begins to then change our affections. And let's be clear, this is a daily, even an hourly, and a minute-by-minute fight. Our sin nature pushes and pushes and pushes us to exalt ourselves and to seek praise from people and not praise from God. We're constantly tempted to place ourselves on the throne and to receive praise from men. What Jesus is saying is that this is all the result of unbelief. And in some senses, we're all unbelievers. Yes, the Bible speaks of two categories with reference to eternity, believers and non-believers, justified and not. That's not what I'm talking about here. Every single one of us, even those who are believers in the truth of who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross, even you still have areas of life where you don't believe in God, where I don't believe in God. We don't trust his word like we should. We don't believe Jesus is enough for all that we're facing. Jesus wants to rescue us from every area of unbelief. But believing in this Jesus is dangerous. Look at verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, Jesus says, you will receive him. Why does Jesus say that if another comes in his own name, you will receive him? Think about it. Those who come in their own name are super easy to follow because they're just like us. People follow them because you can ride their coattails to ruling the kingdom with an iron fist. Then revel in their glory. That's the Messiah that they were all looking for, but wasn't the Messiah that Jesus was. Instead, he came in his Father's name. He was a servant who humbled himself to death on a cross. Following a Messiah like that will cost you your life. That's why they and we and I initially don't want to come to him. Until Jesus turns our hearts from stone to flesh, and we believe. I want to finish by reading what Paul says about Abraham's faith or belief. Romans chapter four, verse, Romans chapter four, verses twenty through twenty-two. Romans chapter four, verses twenty through twenty-two. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Faith is grown strong as we give glory to God. So let us proclaim with the man from Mark 9:24. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus is a life giver. Jesus is a just judge. Jesus transforms desires to the glory of God. Let's pray.